right, I'm excited to turn to God's Word this morning in our, our worship service. If you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 15, we'll be continuing there. Last week, uh, we, we looked at the first six verses of Je- uh, Genesis chapter 15. And we saw that Abram was struggling uh, with his faith, and specifically he was struggling with this promise uh, that he would have an heir, that he would actually have a biological child. And we see that that God uh, strengthens him in this promise, and that even tied into that promise of an heir was this promise that God would, would bless all the families of the earth through Abram, through his offspring, and that being of a Savior. And so last week in verse 6, it ended with, And he, Abram, believed the Lord, and he, God, counted it to him as righteousness. And so we we see Abram come to to faith to trust God uh, for this Savior, and God counts it to him as righteousness. But as we continue in chapter 15, uh, we'll see that there's, there's more going on in the heart of Abram. Um, you probably realize this, uh, that, that when you first get saved, when you first trust the Lord for salvation, not all your uh, questions are answered yet. <laughs> I have been saved for quite some time. Still, not all my questions have been answered yet. It, it is a process. It is a, a, a journey, a growing experience, a sanctifying experience that God takes us on. And that's what we'll be hearing about today as we look at God's covenant with Abram. I'll remind you that up to this point, God has uh, given Abram um, all these promises, specifically in chapter 12, and then God repeats those promises later of an offspring and of a land and of this blessing. But we have yet to have any sort of covenant take place. You know, if you're, you know, super familiar with Abram, you might have been thinking, well, that covenant's already happened. No, it happens right here in chapter 15, uh, God's covenant with Abram. So I pray, my prayer has been that that we'll see these truths clearly, that we'll maybe understand new things and uh, have have a clear vision on what's going on here. So I I want you to hear uh, this whole text at one time so you'll get the big picture. So this is Genesis chapter 15, verses 7 through 21, if you want to to read along with me. It begins... And he, God, said to him, Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he, God, said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, And will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, and the Kadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That, that is God's word. That is the, the description of, of this first time God, God makes this covenant with Abram. Let's pray uh, that God would give us some clarity here. 
Father God, we just come to you as, as needy people. Much like Abram, all of us need our, our, our faith to be strengthened, Lord. So God, I pray that as we, we look at this covenant that you give to Abram, that you would help us to see the beauty of it. Help us to see the significance of what you were promising and sealing with a covenant. And God, I pray that you would show us how these truths, how this covenant even applies to us today. Lord, do that through your word and through your spirit, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is kind of a, a weird text. I don't have a, a straight outline for you in your notes or anything. Um, but what I want to do is, again, we're kind of looking at this in a, in a big picture format, is break this apart and, and look at some of the, the key aspects of this covenant uh, God makes with Abram. What are, what are the key aspects? What exactly is going on here? Because that may have been a blur as we went through. So I would just want to draw out uh, what's really going on here. Um, if you do want to write in your notes, I, I have uh, a, a few points that you could write down. This first one, as we look at, at the covenant, is it was meant to strengthen faith. The, the purpose of this covenant was to strengthen faith. We see that in verses 7 through 10. So we, we saw this covenant ceremony as we read through the, the whole passage but you might have noticed that it, that it comes at a somewhat odd time. You know, we, we might have expected Abram to do something amazing, some amazing feat of faith, and then God says, okay, Abram, I'm making a covenant with you, man. You, you've got it. You've got it figured out, and so I'm going to make a covenant with you. But that's not what we see, is it? Um, look again at, at the verses, um, verses 7 and 8. And he... God And he, God, said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he, Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to, how am I to know that I shall possess it? <laughs> that this is the context in which this covenant, this great Abrahamic covenant, comes to him. God gives this encouragement in verse 7. I'm the one who brought you out of the, the Ur of the Chaldeans, this wicked city, to give you this land, this huge land to possess. But Abram responds by, by questioning God. He says, Oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And this is, this is an interesting thing. This is actually the second time Abram has questioned God in chapter 15 alone. In verse 2, he, he gave a similar thing. How am I going to know that I'll have a child? How could I have a child? I'm, I'm, I'm past child having age. And here we, say how, we see him asking, How am I to know that I shall possess this land? Now this might seem pretty bold to us. It, it does to me. You have the God of the universe speaking down to Abram the, this promise, this encouragement. And he responds by questioning God. What I think we need to do is think this through a little bit. Is it ever okay to question God? Now, I'm not talking about, you know, asking God a question. God, would you, would you please, you know, help this surgery to go well? That's not what I'm talking about. This is questioning God, not asking him a question. How, how can I know that I shall possess this thing that you just said I will possess? That, that's questioning God. Is that ever okay? And if so, when is it Okay. So I just want, I was going to spend a lot of time on this, by the way, but <laughs> there's a lot in this covenant, so I had to cut it shorter. But let's look at what goes on here. There are times in the Bible, as, as we look at it, that people question God. They, they question what God has said, what, what God, God, you know, uh, is and all these things, and God rebukes them. You could think of the, the book of Job uh, near the end. Job has been questioning the, the goodness and the character and the wisdom of God, right? That's, God, I, I want to talk to you about these things. How could you do this? And God rebukes him. You think about all throughout the uh, Old Testament, we have these, these prophets uh, come to, and, and rebuke unbelieving Israel because they're always questioning God. They're always saying, will God really do these things for us? Is, is he really the one and only God? 
And then you can even think of in this Christmas season in Luke chapter 1, uh, God, through an angel, speaks to Zechariah, right? He says, you and your wife will, will have a child. He will be great before the Lord. That's John the Baptist that's talking about. And Abram says, how am I to know that I'll have this child? For I am old. My, me and my wife are, are both old. His wife was barren, in fact. He questions God, and the angel rebukes him. He says, I'm an angel that stands before the Lord. He actually says, you will not be able to speak. You'll be mute until this promise has been fulfilled because you did not believe the word of the Lord. So we see there are these times that God rebukes when people question him, when people question his ways. But on the other hand, we do have many uh, examples in the Bible that God encourages rather than rebukes when someone questions him. So evidently it isn't always wrong to question God. Some examples of that would be uh, just after Zechariah is given that promise and rebuked for his question, Mary receives a promise, right? Mary, the mother of Jesus, she she was a virgin, yet she was going to have a child. She says, "How, how will this be? For I am a virgin. And, and rather than being rebuked, the angel simply answers her, right? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will conceive a child. He answers her. In Judges chapter 6, you might remember Gideon. Gideon uh, questions God uh, about the fact that he is going to be the next judge, the next uh, savior in a physical sense um, of the nation of Israel. And, and each time uh, Gideon questions God, God answers him by giving him a sign. We have in the book of Psalms, there are uh, multiple chapters, multiple entire chapters that are dedicated almost entirely to to questioning God. I think of chapter 10, 44, 74, 77, but none of these times do we get the, the impression that God is angry at these questions. I could go on, I actually have more examples there, but the question is, what is the difference? What is the difference between God firing back a rebuke, how dare you question me, and God bringing encouragement? I'll tell you, in a nutshell, okay, it seems like every time God rebukes a person uh, for questioning him, it's because they asked, asked from a posture of suspicion, bitterness, and rebellion. They, they don't want to obey. They're suspicious of God. They're bitter at God in some way. But on the other hand, when God encourages the, these doubting people, these, this, these weary people, it's because they ask God from a posture of, of goodwill, of, of trust in God, and a desire to obey. Now, in, in that instance, what it is is you're saying, God, how, how can I know this? How can I know that this will be? What that is is actually an acknowledgement that you lack the faith that it would take to follow God with confidence, to follow God in, in complete obedience, to follow him all out. You're acknowledging, God, how can I know this? And it's actually acknowledging, God, you're the one who can help me to believe. That's a different posture, right? Rather than how can this be? For I'm, I'm of old age. That, that's this, this bitterness. He was bitter. Zechariah was bitter at not having a child. But there's this, how can I know? I lack the faith, but I know that you can give it. Having doubts and questioning God is very different than having bitterness and attacking God. Uh, I, I put some things down, just ways of thinking of this. A bitter heart seeks to show God where he is wrong. But a doubting heart seeks to understand how God is right. A bitter heart rejects what God has said. But a doubting heart says, God, I need your help accepting what it is that you have said. Yes, it's okay to question God, but we do need to be very careful about our heart attitude, our posture toward God. Are we trying to, to, to justify God in our hearts, or are we trying to reject God in our hearts? He can and will give us uh, the faith that we are asking for, but it needs to come from a right heart that actually wants it, not just to go our own way. So evidently, Abram here, he doesn't receive a rebuke, so he's asking God in this correct way. 
And so God answers him in in an amazing way. We see in verses 9 and 10, He, God, said to him, Abram, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he, Abram, brought brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. I'll just tell you what's happening there. God just asked Abram uh, to make preparations for a covenant ceremony. That, that's what just happened there in verses 9 and 10. He, he, he said, bring me these animals, and, and Abram brings them. He, he understands that this is for a covenant ceremony. So Abram cuts the animals in half and, and, and lays the birds down dead uh, over against the other. Now this may seem odd to us, right? You know, how is that a covenant ceremony, <laughs> you know, to kill these animals and cut them in half and kill these birds and lay them on the ground? How is that a covenant ceremony? That, that might seem odd to our, our modern uh, sensibilities, right? But we do this exact same thing, uh, maybe not all the time, but we certainly have this in our culture. If you ever testify in court in any way, what will you have to do? You have to raise your hand, lay the other hand on a Bible, and say, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. So help me, God. What's that saying? (laughs) That's saying, if I'm lying right now, may God deal with me (laughs) justly. May he punish me for lying. Even kids do this. Cross my heart and hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. I mean, what they're saying there is, if, if I'm lying, may a needle be stuck in my eye and my heart stop. That, may that happen to me if I'm lying. And we see that exact same thing happening here in this uh, Eastern culture. Their covenant ceremony was that they would cut these animals in half, lay them there, and, and these dead birds lay them there, and they would pass through the animals saying, May the same thing happen to me if I do not hold up my end of this covenant. I mean, that's a pretty strong picture, isn't it? May I be killed and and maimed, (laughs) mutilated, if I do not keep my end of the covenant. And that's what God is doing here. He's making this kind of covenant with Abram. And remember, this comes in, in the wake of Abram questioning God. Abram's faith being weak, and he recognizes, and he says, God, how can I know this? And God says, hey, we're going to do this covenant ceremony. You might realize that God is going to ask later on Abram to do some things that are going to require a great deal of faith, right? Circumcision. I'm sorry, that takes faith right there. Uh, You have that he's told to sacrifice his one son, the son of promise. God tells him to sacrifice that child. He doesn't do it, by the way. Uh, God stops him, but I just didn't want anyone to be worried. Um, It's going to take a lot of faith for Abram to walk in confidence, to walk in obedience. And so he needed encouragement. He needed greater faith in God. He's asking for it, and God is giving it with this covenant promise. Now just think about how much this would, would help Abram, how, much, how great this would be for Abram if he knew for sure, if he knew for certain that the things that God was promising would come to fruition. How big of a difference would that make in his life? Just think of, of the confidence he would have in the Lord. He's going out, again, in this land that is not his own amongst foreigners, or he's the foreigner, you know, amongst these people who live there. And God had told us in uh, chapter 15, verse 1, uh, you, might, you might see that there, 15, verse 1, the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and he said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. How great would it be if Abram could truly fear not? How great would it be if he knew my life will not be taken from me until this promise of an heir, an offspring, is fulfilled? He could walk in courage and confidence. And just think of of the ways he would walk in obedience if he uh, truly believed God in that second part. Chapter 15, verse 1, God, God said, Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. How obedient uh, would he be if he truly believed your reward will be very great as you walk in obedience toward me, with me? 
He is able, he is free to keep his eyes on the prize and live all out for God if he has this confidence, if he has this faith. And that was the purpose of this covenant, one of the main purposes of this covenant. Not only would it encourage Abram, by the way, but his descendants after him. We'll we'll see the same covenant later in Genesis repeated to to Isaac and to Jacob and, and so on. The people of Israel clung to these promises. How great would it be for them if they could know for sure? But, as we shift a little further in this covenant, there are what you might call some caveats in this covenant, okay? And we're going to need to look at those, but if you're writing in your, your notes or anything, that first one is it was meant to encourage faith. The second one is, the second point is, this covenant was meant to give realistic expectations. To give realistic expectations. This, this really may seem odd, uh, but just g- give me a minute and hopefully I can explain it, uh, because this covenant would be made with, with Abram and with, with all Israel, really, but it would only be fulfilled through great tribulation. And they needed real ex- realistic expectations about this. All right, we'll, we'll see this here in verses uh, 11 through 16. The first place we see it there in, in uh, verse 11. The animals had been cut, you know, and they'd been placed, and the birds had been laid where they should be. They're just waiting for the covenant ceremony to proceed. And it says, verse 11, And when birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. You know, it's kind of, in my mind, is, is a little bit of a funny scene. I just imagine this dude in a robe, you know, swatting at these birds. And, but, but he does, you know, th- this happens. There, there are these uh, carcasses there, and these birds come down on them, and Abram has to drive them away. Now, this may have been just something that happened, okay? This might have no significance at all. I'll just tell you that up front. It's possible that there's nothing to verse 11 uh, being there. But on the other hand, this wasn't something that's, that's not commonplace. This is, this is a pretty normal thing for birds of prey to come down on carcasses, right? What, the, the best road cleanup crew we have is what? <laughs> Birds. If you ever see a carcass on the side of the road, there are probably birds with that carcass. So this isn't anything all that weird. So if it's, if it's common for this to happen, why would it be here in the Bible? Why would it be here if it carried no significance at all? I won't spend much time here, but there are many commentators, and I have to agree with them, that believe that this occurrence there in verse 11 is an omen. Uh, a sign, a foreshadowing of things to come with this covenant. That, in fact, this this covenant uh, would be fulfilled, yes, but it would only happen through great tribulation. I mean, think about it. If there is tribulation just in the covenant ceremony, there's probably going to be tribulation in the covenant being fulfilled. I'll just tell you, if, a, if a, uh, a man and woman are fighting the whole time at their own wedding ceremony, it's probably an omen of things to come. <laughs> it's not going to go real well for them. And so that may be uh, what we see happening here. God just giving him uh, just this sort of omen, this sign of sorts. Now, the next thing we see in verses 12 and 13 is, is not just a hint of this, but God explicitly, explicitly tells him, now this covenant is going to be fulfilled, but it may not go the way that you think. There's going to be tribulation. Look at it, verses 12 and 13. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. I mean, that would be a bit of a gut punch, uh, if you ask me. <laughs> Abram's like, okay, I need this confidence that, the, that these promises will be fulfilled. And God says, so you're going to have offspring, but they're actually going to end up being servants in a land that's not theirs for 400 years. When, when did that happen, by the way? What's that talking about? Well, when you get to the end of Genesis, Genesis 50, you see that the, the uh, people of God travel down into Egypt because there's a famine in the land. Then in Exodus, when you open it up in the first chapter there, you see that they've been residing there and they've been multiplying and strengthening, but they've also become slaves 
under the Egyptian people. They're being afflicted. In fact, and I can't remember, I think it might be uh, Exodus 1, 6 or something like that. That very same word is there that they are being afflicted by the Egyptians. And we see that there. They will be afflicted for 400 years. We see that in verse 13. But that's not the end of the story. Verse 14, you see there, verse 14 in your Bibles. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now what's that talking about? That, of course, is talking about God sending Moses uh, down into Egypt, saying, you know, let my people go to Pharaoh. And it says there, I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. Does God bring judgment? We call them the ten plagues. <laughs> that is judgment. Uh, and then even when they leave, the, the, the army gets crushed uh, by the Red Sea. And then it says there, afterward they shall come out with great possessions. That's the end of verse 14. We know that when Pharaoh finally did let them go, I actually have the, the verses here, when Pharaoh finally lets them go in Exodus chapter 12, verses 35 and 36 say, the people of Israel asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing, okay? Your slaves who you're letting go are asking for silver and gold, and, or gold jewelry and for clothing. Yeah, that's not going to happen. Verse 36, And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. They came out with great possessions. But this happened, this, this freeing of them, and they do eventually, obviously, you know, go to the land under uh, Moses' leadership through the wilderness. Then Joshua leads them in. But that's only after 400 years of captivity. That is a bit of a setback on these promises that God had been, been uh, giving Abram. That's a bit of a, a tribulation. But God is giving him expectations. He's giving the descendants after Abram right expectations. Finally, we come to our last tribulation. I call this the tribulation of waiting. Uh, verses 15 and 16, God says, As for you, Abram, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they, that's the descendants of Abram, they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is the first time that Abram learns, I won't actually receive this promised land in this earthly lifetime. He's been given this promise. He is in the land. He's living in tents there. And God is now telling him, Abram, you're going to go to your fathers. Well, where was his father? It told us in chapter 11, his father had died in Haran. <laughs> he had been buried God's saying you're going to die, and he says, and you'll be buried in a good old age. The descendants would get this promised land in four generations, it says there. You, by the way, can see those four generations in Exodus chapter 6 from Levi to Aaron and Moses, so God, God keeps his word there. But Abram would not see that day. He would never own more than the burial plot of his wife. It would be really hard to wait on God like that. For me, I mean, I don't know about you, but I live in the fast food microwave culture that says, I want it, I get it. Someone tells me I'm going to have it, I receive it. But God's saying, you won't even get it in this lifetime. You know, we, we do. We get mad when we're stuck in traffic uh, we get mad when our, our coffee maker takes too long. We're, we're impatient people in many ways. We're impatient people. But did you know, did you know, have you ever realized that, that being impatient is actually a lack of faith in God? Who is sovereign over everything that happens in your life? God. Who, who, who orchestrated those things? By, by whose wisdom? God's. So to say, uh, uh, you know, to be impatient with our actions and with our attitudes is to say, you know what? My plan was better. My wisdom was greater. So I, I'm mad about this. Uh, John Piper says, says this, 
impatience is a form of unbelief. It's what we begin to feel when we start to doubt the wisdom of God's timing or the goodness of God's guidance. It springs up in our hearts when our plan is interrupted or shattered. It may be prompted by a long wait in a checkout line or a sudden blow that knocks out half our dreams. The opposite of patience is not a glib denial of loss. It's a deepening, ripening, peaceful willingness to wait for God in the unplanned place of obedience and to walk with God at the unplanned pace of obedience. To wait in His place and to go at His pace. And the key is faith in the promises of God. That's what he says. And that's uh, what, what God is doing here. He's, he's giving these expectations to Abram, instilling in him a patience that he needs. A faith that says, this is not the timing I was hoping for, but God, I trust you. Abram is learning patience in God because God is setting these expectations. This is part of this tribulation and the fulfillment of this amazing uh, covenant. And it's interesting, you might notice there in verse 16, God actually tells him why he has to wait. I'll tell you this, most of the time, God is not going to let you know why you have to wait. You may not even know after the fact why you had to wait. You won't know why you hit every red light on the way to work. You won't know that. But we can see here from, this, uh, uh, from God giving an explanation to Abram that, that we can trust God. If Abram could trust God's wisdom, then we can too. Verse 16, he says, And they, that's the promise, uh, God's chosen people, they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. The, the Amorites is kind of just a general term for the Canaanites, the, the people of Canaan. That's just one of the main people groups that live there, so that's just a coverall term, the Amorites. And it says the, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. You guys will get this promised land, but it will not be for 400 years. Why? Because there's this wicked people in the promised land, but you know what? I'm going to give them time. I'm going to, to give them time to turn from their wickedness. 400 years, in fact. And that way, when the people, the promised uh, people, uh, the people of Israel do go to take the promised land, no one will be able to say God was unjust in doing that. No one will be able to say God is unmerciful in doing that. In this way, the people of Israel were not tyrants taking over the promised land. They were the very hand of God carrying out God's judgment that he had been patient in doing for 400 years. That's God's wisdom. That's God's timing. We see that example here with Abram. But I hope we can see that in our own lives, even when we don't recognize the reason. But I told you that, that part of this is, is, is God's giving these expectations. Again, why? Why, why, why is he giving these weird expectations? This seems like an almost disheartening promise. But if one of the main purposes of this covenant is to encourage faith, what would Abram think as his health began to wane away, right? Later in his years, he, he realizes, I am on my deathbed. I need to bless my children because I am about to die. And he still owns nothing but his wife's burial plot. What would he have thought in that moment? What would you think? Time's running out. God maybe is not faithful to his promises. But no, God gave him a promise. You'll be buried in a good age. 400 years later, people will, will come and own this land, but it won't be you. I mean, you could even think, what would, have, what would have son, his sons have thought? You know, our, our father is dying. We know about the promises giving, given, and uh, we're, we don't have this land. But they had this, these expectations from God. What about, uh, I don't know, what, let's say 300 years into the slavery of Egypt, what would they have been thinking? God has forgotten us. God has forgotten his promises to us. He's forgotten his covenant to us. But they would know. They could look back to this covenant ceremony where God said, this is going to happen. You will be slaves 400 years, but on the fourth generation, you will come back. 
God is giving them realistic expectations so that they can have encouraged faith in God. We'll come back to this later, but think about that for the Christian life. Does that not fly in the face of the health, wealth, and prosperity gospel that says you get saved and your life will be hunky-dory, everything will be great, God will heal all your infirmities, you'll get a, a, a huge bank account? No, that is not the way it goes. We are promised tribulation. Again, we'll look at that later, but realistic expectations are, are helpful for our faith so that we don't question God when bad things happen. All right. So what else do we see in this covenant? The next thing I want to show you is the, the covenant terms. The covenant terms, and they are, if you want to write them down there, it is unilateral and unconditional. And these are kind of tied together, unilateral and unconditional. Uh, we see this in verses 17 through 21. It says there, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On the day the Lord, Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, of the Euphrates, the land of the... And then he you know, goes on and lists all the, the nations that, that are there. So, so here, God is basically saying, you know, you, you've got this covenant promise. Y your offspring, uh, I will give this land. What is that a reminder of? You will have offspring. Abram was pretty worried about that because he's, he's getting past, or he's already well past uh, being able to have children. You'll have this offspring to your offspring. And he says to, the, to your offspring, I will give this land. So there's the promise, the covenant of this land. And then God gives the, the specific uh, uh, geography, land, you know, maybe you could think of on a map, God marks off the boundaries uh, of what the promised land will be. But again, what we really want to notice here is that it's unilateral and unconditional. See, normally, in this type of covenant ceremony, they would cut the animals, you know, may this be done to me, is what they're saying with that. But both parties in the covenant would pass through these animals. Both parties would do that. And by passing through, they were agreeing to the terms of the covenant, that they would carry out these terms of the covenant. But what do we see in verse 17? It said there again, When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. Those are a re representative of God passing through. God uh, passes through the animals. God, uh, you know, agrees to the terms of the covenant that he has just made. But what we do not see anywhere is Abram passed through. We don't see Abram agreeing to any terms of a covenant. See, this is different than a bilateral covenant where you agree to do this and I'll agree to do this. That's a bilateral covenant. This is a unilateral covenant that God says, I am going to do this for you. I, myself, bind me and only me to this covenant. This was a gift from God. In addition... As I said, they're kind of tied together. It was unilateral, but it was also unconditional. We, we don't see God uh, say anything that Abram has to do. He doesn't say, well, Abram, I will do these things if you build altars all over the land of Canaan, or, or if you never fail me again, because he will, or if you know, you, you don't uh, share my name everywhere or, or pray by, beside your bed every night or before every meal. You, you don't see that anywhere here. All that was left for Abram to do was to believe these covenant promises. He is literally an empty vessel. He comes to the table with nothing but need, and God is unilaterally and unconditionally fulfilling that need. All Abram has to do is believe in these covenant promises of God. Now, there, there's more I could say here, um, and I just, for time's sake, won't go deep into anything, uh, but I, I'll mention this was an eternal covenant from God, an eternal covenant. We see that in uh, verse 18, God says to your offspring, I give this land. That, that's a, a present verb there, I give. Well, I thought they didn't get it for another 400 years. 
This is, this is a, a present verb. In, in, in Hebrew, the way it's used here, we don't always have parallels in the English language, but this is, this is saying it's already as good as yours, and it's an abiding possession. That, that's the understanding we get from that verb here. Again, I'm not going to spend too much time on that, but it's, it's good to know. I want us to know moving forward that this is an eternal covenant. Another is uh, it, ha- it has or may have a refining dimension. This, this covenant may actually have a, re- a refining dimension to it. Uh, I, again, I don't want to put too much emphasis on this because people definitely disagree, but I'll just give you my thoughts. It, we see there God passes through the animals as a smoking fire pot. A smoking fire pot. There are many, uh, some commentators at least, who believe the type of fire pot that this was is not a cooking pot, something you might cook a stew in or something, but this is actually a refining pot. Uh, what they would do is they would put metal into it, this, this hard pot. They would heat this metal up to uh, very high heat until it melted down. And you know that any of the impurities that were in the metal would rise to the top. That's called the dross. And the person, the metal worker, would then scoop off the dross and, and throw it to the side. And then, then they would let it harden again and then reheat it back up and let that, that dross rise to the surface. And the way that they would know that the metal was pure was this. They would look into it, and they would be able to see their reflection. That's how they would know that it was pure. Tell me that's not a beautiful picture of the refining work of God, that he would refine his people, the people of promise, until he could see his own reflection in them. The next thing we see is that God passes through as a flaming torch. This is almost assuredly speaking of God's character and his uh, revealing ability that, you know, he shines light on the truth. But we also think about that, that tied into this covenant, right, that was given to Abraham, that, that all uh, the, the peoples, all the families of the world would be blessed. Through this covenant, through the fulfillment of this covenant to Abraham, Abram, God was bringing the light of the world into the world. That is beautiful. Again, I don't want to put too much emphasis on these things because I'm, I'm making assumptions. I'm making uh, somewhat of guesses because we're not given any interpretation for, for these things, the fire pot and the, the flaming torch. But I believe it's showing this refining element and it's showing this light that would come into the world through the fulfillment of this covenant. So we've seen... We've seen, of course, that, that there's this covenant that's meant to encourage faith. God gives realistic expectations. And the, the terms of this covenant are they are unilateral, given by God and God alone, and they're unconditional. They will be fulfilled by God, only to be believed by the other party. But there is one more thing I want to look at before we, we end our time here. One more element of this that we will realize later on in Scripture. This covenant was meant to accomplish and point to a greater covenant. This covenant was meant to accomplish, to to clear the way for, and to point to a greater covenant. We know that that this covenant to Abram was not the final covenant of God. You have the, the Sinai or the Mosaic covenant. Uh, you have the covenant uh, with, with David, the Davidic covenant. But the, the covenant to Abram and, and, and even these later covenants were really meant to clear the way for and give uh, some indicators of this new covenant that would take place. So how does it clear the way for this new covenant? Well, as we've talked about, this offspring that would come from Abram would eventually be Jesus himself. The, the, the people of Israel are, are Abram's offspring, and Jesus is an offspring of Israel. Through this covenant, God is preparing the way for the covenant maker, Jesus Christ, to enter this world. The light that comes into the world, John chapter 1 tells us. But what was the new covenant that it was being pointed to? So this covenant brings in the covenant maker of this new covenant, but what is this new covenant? I'll just give you some here. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says this. This is Old Testament. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand 
to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, uh, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. That's talking about the Sinai covenant. Verse 33, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. I love this. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So there we see, even in the Old Testament, that there was this, this new, this greater covenant that was coming. But I said, these things, these other covenants were pointing to this newer covenant. We think about tribulation. Once again, under this new covenant that Jesus uh, one day brings, uh, Acts 14, 22, Paul, it says about Paul that he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations. This is to you and I, by the way, because uh, we are under this new covenant. And we'll, we'll look more at that in a moment. But I just want to show you how it's pointing. 2 Timothy 3.12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus, in fact, said in John 16.33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. So, like Abram, <laughs> under this new covenant, we are to have realistic expectations. We see that in the Abrahamic covenant, and now we see that in this new covenant. It was pointing to the fact that we, too, would have tribulation in the fulfillment of this prophecy. The next thing we see, though, is still, still within that, that expectations thing, is there's a bit of a twist in the new covenant. See, there would be tribulation, yes, in the fulfillment, but the one making the covenant would actually be the one to experience the most tribulation, the most trial, right? Luke twenty-two nineteen through 20 says this, And he, Jesus, took bread, and we had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. So Jesus' body was going to be broken. He says, Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. His blood was going to be poured out. Again, we saw with Abram's covenant, these animals that died and were cut in half, there was bloodshed to seal this covenant. And the blood that was shed to seal the new covenant, the tribulation that was truly faced, was Jesus' own blood. God the Son who took on flesh so that he might shed blood for us and carry out this, this new covenant, covenant ceremony. So we could actually think of Jesus, when, when, the, when the crown of thorns was crushed into his head, when the whips struck his back, as the nails were stuck through his hands and through his feet, as the uh, spear pierced his side, that was him performing a covenant ceremony for us, assuring us, of this new covenant's fulfillment. He's saying, I will do this. I will do these things for you. Here is how I will seal it with my very own blood. This was a unilateral covenant, right? I didn't promise anything to God. And, and so he goes up there and, you know, dies on the cross. <laughs> Quite the opposite, <laughs> really. It is unconditional, Right? What does Jesus ask you to do? What do you have to do to merit your salvation? Absolutely nothing. He did it all. All that is left for us to do, like Abram, is to believe in this covenant ceremony and the covenant promises. He doesn't say, hey, if you go to church every Sunday, then you'll make it. If you tithe 10%, you'll make it. If you quit cussing, if you quit drinking, if you he doesn't say any of that. He says, I'm dying for you. I'm paying for your sins. All that's left for us to do is believe in what he has done, and we take part in these covenant promises. I, I like how Hebrews puts it. It says, but, but as it is, Christ has 
obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on, on better promises. So this new covenant actually carries with it better promises than the Abrahamic, better co- promises than, than, than the Sinai, better promises than the Davidic covenant. Let's look at some of the new covenant promises. There are many, but I just want to uh, show you some of the highlights. It's promised in Ezekiel 36, 25 through 28. I'll, I'll read this for you. God says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. These are all new things that were happening. Listen to this, verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. There will be this spirit put in us, this, this, this new giving of a spirit, this new power that would come, this indwelling spirit. This is a new covenant promise that was ratified, enacted by Jesus. Let me just tell you, the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, this is a humongous deal. Now, the Holy Spirit was active before the New Covenant, but not in this way. Listen to just some of the ways the Holy Spirit is promised to act for us in the New Testament, this this part of the New Covenant. He will convict us of sin and righteousness. That's John 16, 8. He will guide us into truth, that's 16.13. He will make us born again, that's 3.6. He will give us life and peace, that's Romans 8.6. He will help us please God, that's Romans 8.8. He will help us to kill sin, 8.13. He will remind us that we are children, and so his heirs, Romans 8.16. He will help us in our weakness, 8.26. He will intercede for us in prayer, 8.26. He will give us a power for witness, Acts 1.8. He will seal us or keep us so that we persevere to the end, Ephesians 1.13 and 14. And there are many more. Those are just promises that come with this new covenant, this new indwelling that we get with the Holy Spirit under this new covenant. But let's not forget, there's just one really big thing that God highlighted in Jeremiah 31. John, Jeremiah 31, 34, he said at the end of it, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Finally, there is forgiveness of sins. There is a forgetting of sins even to look at us as though we had never committed a sin. How? How could that possibly be done? By that very covenant ceremony. In fact, in the covenant ceremony, Jesus was fulfilling part of the new covenant that he would wipe away our sins because he took our sins upon himself. God made him who knew no sin so that we made him sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. In the new covenant, Jesus has paid for our sins that we might spend eternity with him. You think of other promises Jesus gave. I go to prepare a place for you. I will be there. You'll you'll get to be with me for eternity. These are promises that are fulfilled in the new covenant. These are amazing promises that you and I hold that the Abrahamic covenant should be pointing us to. Now, the Abrahamic covenant was awesome. I get that. It, It really was. But its main purpose was to clear the way for, by sending Jesus, and to point to this new covenant. So the question is, if this lesser covenant, I would say, awesome as it is, I'm not knocking the Abrahamic covenant, if this lesser covenant was meant to instill in Abram, to instill in his descendants faith, how much more so should this new covenant, purchased by Jesus' blood, instill faith in you and I? Abram, again, was, was going to have to do some crazy things that would require lots of faith in his life. He would have to deny himself over and over again. He would have to go and be courageous for God over and over. And he did that under the Abrahamic covenant. You and I have the, the new covenant that was paid for in Jesus' blood. Romans eight thirty two. 
He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Look, if the covenant was ratified, if it was put in place by the blood of God himself, in the, in the person of Jesus, God and man, if, if God did that, how much more so will he fulfill all the other promises of the covenant? How much more so do we need to fear not? How much more so do we need to believe that your reward will be very great? How much more so should we be freed from our sin, these things that will not truly satisfy when Jesus says, I am the joy that you need? How much more can we look to heaven, look to eternity, uh, eternal reward with God, rather than playing with these piddly things here on earth? How much more can we do that? How much more can we share boldly the gospel that is the power of God unto salvation? How, can, how much more can we do that knowing that we now have the Holy Spirit in us giving us the power to do that? If we can trust Him enough that He fulfilled the Abrahamic promise, right, the Abrahamic covenant, He did that by crucifying His own Son, how much more can we trust Him with the promises He has given you and I, how much more radically should that shift our lives? As we come to this communion table, I, I think I probably gave us enough to think about just now. But we understand, this is, this is important, how do we remember the covenant that was made by Jesus? What do we do to remember that covenant? What do we do to, to remember and, and be given that faith anew? This table right here is meant to remind us of the covenant, the broken body of Jesus, the blood poured out by Jesus. That's why we do this. Do this in remembrance of me, Jesus said. We need to remember. We need to have this faith. We need to do all that God has asked, asked us to do because he will do all that he has promised to do. Now, another uh, purpose of this communion that, again, looks to this new covenant is that it was meant to proclaim Jesus until the day that he comes back. So if there is anyone in this room that does not stand as a recipient of this, this unilateral, unconditional covenant, I'm telling you, all that's left for you to do is believe. Say, you're right, God, I don't want my sin. I want you to cleanse me. I want you to wash me and make me clean. I want you to give me the Spirit, give me this new life. I want that, and I know that I can do it because of what Jesus did on that cross all those years ago. And I believe that, that all the other promises that he has made will be fulfilled. Don't you want to trust that God with your life, with your salvation? Don't you want to spend eternity with that kind of God? He's an amazing God who would do that for you. We trust him. We live for him. Let's pray. Father God, I do pray that we've seen this covenant that you made with Abram clearly. God, I pray that we, we recognize your goodness in all of it. That we would not be like unbelieving Israel that didn't believe you were as good as you said you were. God, I pray that any who are in here today that are not a part of the, the new covenant that was brought about by the blood of Jesus, that they would trust it. That they would receive new life. God, I pray for all of us that are under this new covenant. God, that we would believe it that our faith would be strengthened as we look back to what you have, you've done. God, help us to live lives of godliness based on the promises you give us. God, help us to turn to you instead of the things of this world. God, I pray that there are people in this room who have maybe been half-hearted in their life with you, that today, by understanding your covenants, that they would go all in. They would go all in. That they would do whatever it is you're asking them to do. That they would 
forsake whatever it is you're asking them to forsake. And they would do it all for your glory and their own joy that you have promised. Lord, I pray all this in your Son's name. Amen.